Father, we say thank you. We thank you again for gathering your people together. We thank you for the work that you have done in, in our lives to awaken dead hearts to life, to behold you for who you truly are, to declare you as our king. So we gather under your lordship this morning. We gather under the authority of your word. We ask for you to uh, cause all of us to submit our lives fully to it. I pray that you would work through it, through your spirit, to help us to see more clearly this morning. Help us to recognize the ways in which uh, maybe we have fallen short of your glory and how you have come and paid the price to reunite us to yourself. And so I just pray that you would use this time to lift up your name, to glorify yourself. And I pray that through this, we would be those who grow to love you more deeply. We say thank you again for your goodness to us and for your word. Bless it now. And we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can have a seat. When I was about 15 or 16 years old, my family took a a trip to New York City. And it was on that trip that I purchased my first and only pair of Oakley sunglasses. We were uh, standing in line uh, waiting to get on the, uh, I think, go out and see the Statue of Liberty. And this nice gentleman comes over and he opens up his jacket and says, hey, you want to buy some sunglasses? And me, at 15 years old, wanted a pair of Oakleys. And so there they were, this nice red pair of Oakleys with white uh, earpieces on them. They were great. And so for $20, got the best deal ever, I purchased these sunglasses. Now, like you know, and even I knew at the time, these were not real Oakleys. But they were about the closest thing that I was going to get at the time. I certainly couldn't afford the $120 to buy a, a, a real pair of glasses, and my parents certainly wouldn't uh, let me, especially as much as I lose things, if you know me. Um, that was not going to happen. And so, anyway, I bought these sunglasses, and you know, as much as I knew they were fake, I wore them and kind of hoped, I guess, that other people would think that maybe I did have real sunglasses, because they were awesome. They looked like the real thing. They were, as I, I think the, uh, the, the young people say these days, they were fire. And so uh, they, were, they were awesome. It was bright red. And so uh, anyway, I wore them proudly and, and enjoyed wearing them. Um, I even, uh, when I got back home, my best friend, he was saving up for a pair of Oakleys. And he, he, he wanted a pair of Oakleys. And so I remember going up to him and I had my, my glasses on. And he was like, no way, did you seriously get Oakleys? And I'm like, yeah, aren't they awesome? And he's like, let me see those. And he, he grabs them and he, he's like, he's like, these aren't real. I'm like, yeah, they are. Look, it says Oakley right there on it. And I remember he, he rubbed his finger right across the, the, the like, nose piece and immediately like, the, the, the label got like, peeled off that was on there. And he hands them back and says, yeah, of course, he, he sees them as fake. Um, and here, here in our story, Jesus, uh, at the end of his sermon, really shares us two images that really do that same thing, that, that teach us this, this same truth, that, that authenticity will be revealed in the end. The quality of those glasses was, was quickly shown in time. You know, I think it was just a month later that all the paint and different things was peeling off of them. They didn't last very long because they were not the real thing. They were, they were shown to be fake, to be inauthentic. And here, at the end of this passage, Jesus is calling us to reflect on our lives and to consider uh, the authenticity of our faith of what our faith is ultimately grounded in, and will it hold up? Will it prove to be genuine and authentic? 
And so this morning we come to the conclusion what has been this extended teaching from Jesus. Depending on who you ask, this is either Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount or a separate teaching time that has many of the same elements in it. And what we have heard from Jesus is that he has offered these blessing and woes which call us to consider the surprising and even the upside-down nature of those who belong to the kingdom of God. If we want to properly see the glory of His kingdom, we've been shown that we have to view things differently than what our natural vision allows. We have to begin to change the way that we see our enemies. Rather than responding with hatred and a spirit of vindictive payback towards them, we at times may absorb those things that are done against us and actually offer love and grace to those who hate and even hurt us. Jesus has then taught us about the way to discern proper judgment, not as those who sit as the final arbiter of, 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 of judgment and condemnation over people's character, but rather we, we approach others with fairness and graciousness like we would want to be treated and recognize first our own blindness and maybe the timbers that might be coming out of our own eyes. And so these final few verses present us with two concluding illustrations. They're taken from common elements of everyday life from agriculture and architecture. And these images are, are tied in with the rest of this sermon, and they teach us this truth, this idea that, that the produce and the perseverance of your life reveals the authenticity of faith. The produce and the perseverance of your life reveals the authenticity of your faith. What you produce and the stability of your life and your faith will ultimately reveal how authentic it is and what it is ultimately rooted upon. And so those will be our two big ideas this morning, the principle of produce and the principle of perseverance. And so the text begins with this phrase, for no good tree bears bad fruit. And as much as these teaching sections may feel at times like bullet points or just random snippets that are kind of stitched together, I think there is a continuity that's here. We've just been challenged in regards to judging others. And as Beck helpfully showed us last week, remember he said that, that, that the posture that we have towards others reveals our understanding of what we've been given and our place in the kingdom. And so we are cautioned against following blind leaders. And as we recognize that, that we're shaped by those that we follow, we have to remember that if we're not self-correcting first, then, then we may start pointing out all the flaws and the failures in other people's lives and miss the massive faults that are right in front of us. Right? Isn't that what we often do? We, we hide the, the, the flaws uh, in our lives behind kind of this facade of, of pointing out and highlighting all of the issues in other people. And so then this illustration flows from this with this final reminder that, that, that good and pat, bad trees serve as this final path of discernment for us. And if you notice how his teaching has kind of shifted from kind of this, this big general idea from the Beatitudes to kind of the nature of how we deal and, and respond in relationships to other people and now is zeroing in inwardly. It goes from outward now is coming to, to deal with us inwardly. And so if you want to know what kind of influence is shaping you, what kind of person you are being formed into, the answer is to look at what is being produced both in those who are leading you and even in your own life. And so the illustration that Jesus offers is not this profound reality, but it's actually just a basic pattern of nature. And so he says this, he says, good trees don't produce bad fruit and bad trees don't produce good fruit. Wow, isn't that profound, right? And his point is, if, if a tree produces bad fruit, 
It's not the fruit's fault. You can't blame the fruit. There's a problem with the tree. The tree is ultimately known by its fruit. The fruit tells you what kind of tree it is and how healthy that tree is. And Jesus extends this illustration and say, hey, you see a thorn bush? What do you do? You don't go over to a thorn bush and try to find figs on it. You don't go to a bramble bush and expect to get grapes off of it. Everybody knows that if you want grapes, you have to go to a healthy grape vine. You don't have to have a degree in horticulture or arbory to understand Jesus' illustration. It's quite simple. And so this principle of agriculture is then applied to the human condition, where he says a good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and an evil person out of the evil treasure of his heart produces evil. So how are we to apply and understand Jesus' point with this? I believe first, as the audience receives this, they are called to now discern between the teaching of the Jewish leaders who they have been learning from and the teaching of Jesus. Remember how Jesus has been confronting kind of the the religious hypocrisy of the Pharisees. He's calling those who are gathered here before him to consider the fruit that is produced from them and conversely, the fruit that he himself is bringing and offering. Because the true nature of their teachers will be shown in the fruit that is produced and the ones that they follow will then create that same character in them. And so as this is is applied to the hearer and to us, we are ultimately asked, what is my life producing? And to to answer this question and to, to wrestle with this, this is where we have to understand how the gospel informs our understanding of this principle. You see, verse 45 says this. It says, a good person. A good person out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good. So who's a good person? It's it's those who produce good fruit. But, but, But evil fruit comes from an evil person. More specifically, from the treasure box that is the heart. So notice what he says specifically produces good or evil. It's the heart. Obviously, and it's not the, the organ that is inside of our chest, but he's, he's using this metaphor to refer to what is that, that deepest core of our being, who we are at our very center. And it's so important for us to understand this because how, how do we have to think of heart? And then the language that it's used casually in our conversations, it's kind of this you know, sometimes this, this passive, almost uncontrolled element of us, right? It's our hearts that kind of just fall in love. Or our heart is hurt or, or broken by others. We're called to just kind of follow our heart wherever it goes. Kind of has a mind of its own. We see it merely kind of as our emotional center that reacts to our circumstances. But Jesus here is telling us that our heart is actually active. It's the driving force that brings forth acts of volition and, and, and purpose. To illustrate this, Jesus draws on our speech. He says what, what you speak is actually a manifestation outwardly of what is contained inwardly. And this is important for us to understand because when people are confronted with things they don't like in their lives or even with their evil actions, how do they often maybe respond or what do we hear? 
Maybe you've heard this kind of thing when a celebrity is, is, is caught in some scandal or you know, said something that offended people. How, how do they respond sometimes? It's things like this. Their tendency is to excuse that behavior as something foreign to who they truly are. Right? Or to attribute that wrongful action or words to maybe a, a momentary lapse in judgment. Or to some other cause. Maybe circumstances or another person just acted upon their passive heart and what resulted was this aberration of their true character. It's not really in line with, with my values and, and, and who I am. Maybe you've defended your own actions like that at times and with such ideas. Maybe when you've gotten an argument with your spouse and you said, I, I didn't mean that. I was just upset my emotions got the best of me, or after you've done something you regret and that you know is wrong, I can't believe that I did that. That's, that's not like me. That's, that's not who I am. Why, why do we do that? Because ultimately, we don't want to admit that evil things that we do are because of the evil in our heart. And so we have to attribute the cause of the evil to some other outside influence, some other agency, not to who we are. After all, I'm a good person. Isn't that what people say? I've just stumbled into some, some bad choices. The deck was kind of stacked against me. I, I can't quite help it, but I'm a good person. I, I, I need to, to try harder. I'm, I'm, I'm working on things. I, I will do better. I'm not perfect, but I'm, I'm a good person. Is that not often the cry of our day and our culture? But Jesus over and over again says that it's not what goes into a man, but it's what comes out of a man that defiles him. It's what comes out of the heart that reveals what is inside the type of tree that they are. And so the thing that we have to realize when, when, when we look at this is that at the end of the day, there is no one who is truly good. Paul takes a long time in the book of Romans to try to unpack this. And he ultimately says, quoting from the Psalms, that there is none righteous, not even one. Later he says, all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. In our natural human condition, we are corrupt, we are bad trees. And as much as we may try, we, may, we will simply produce bad fruit. And we have to come and see that we aren't good people that just do bad things, but we do bad things because we have evil hearts. And that's hard to accept, Right? No one wants to see themselves like that. No one wants to believe that about themselves. So what are we to do? But it's important to, 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 to start here because this is why Jesus was so hard on the Pharisees. Because they, they were so blind to their own sin because they hid behind their religiosity. What did Jesus later call them? He called them whitewashed tombs, right? That on the outside they had been painted up nicely, but on the inside they were full of nothing but dead men's bones. And I, I read this week, someone made this claim that, that he said religious hypocrisy is actually worse than intentional deception. If you think of a con man or someone that, that, that intentionally deceives others for their own gain, like at least they know that they're doing it. That they, that it's very clear that they are choosing to do that. But what's so uh, 
deceptive about our, our religious pretense at times is that we begin to deceive ourselves. We start actually believing that we're wearing real, authentic Oakleys. And we don't see it. You know, I, I have an uh, apple tree in my backyard. Didn't know it was an apple tree for a few years until saw some apples on it. But it's not a good apple tree. We've never really got any good apples off of it. Can't, can't eat them. They're not really edible. I don't, I don't know what it is. It doesn't, it doesn't grow very well. I'm not sure what the problem is, but ultimately, it's a bad tree. But I, you know, I like a good apple. You know, apples are kind of a weird fruit. It's either like they're either really good or they're terrible, right? Is anybody with me on that? Like, like, so, so what if, if I went to the store and I, I, I got some honey, honey crisp are pretty good. Nice, fresh, good, solid honey crisp. And I took those apples and I went out to my backyard and I nailed them onto the branches of that apple tree. Nailed them on there, brought the family out and said, hey, look at, look at this apple tree. It's got, it's got, Great apples on it. Let's go. Let's let's take them. Let's eat them. Have I done anything to change that tree, other than decorate it up? No. No. It's it still is a bad tree that's not producing anything. And sometimes I think we are like that with our religiosity, where we are just nailing apples to a dead tree. And we're putting it up with our attendance at church our giving, whatever it may be. And we, we hide behind all of that because we don't actually want to deal with the brokenness and the evil that we see in our own lives. But the reality is that we have to recognize that none of us are good treats. But there is one who is. As we look at Jesus, as we see how He is revealed throughout this Gospel, throughout the Scriptures, we see that as He comes along, He produces nothing but good fruit because He is the only truly good man. And the invitation that He's getting forth is that if you follow Him, if you enter into His kingdom, then He is going to do a work in you. And you can actually be grafted into Him, the only truly good tree, and only through Him can you actually begin to produce good fruit. And as you receive Jesus, put your faith in Him, what is fulfilled in you is the promises that were set forth, that were given to us by the Old Testament prophets. Words like Ezekiel chapter 36 that says this, it says, I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And I'll give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Only those who are united to Christ are those who will produce good fruit. Well, maybe there's a challenge here where you say, hey, I, I am a follower of Jesus. I fully trust in Him. I am a Christian. But you say, it seems like I keep finding bad fruit in my life. What does that mean for me? There are a couple things we need to understand as we read this. That Jesus is not speaking about perfection, but He's using this, this proverbial principle that will generally follow in the life of a disciple. And in doing so, He's also offering a warning to say if your life produces nothing that is evidence of, of, of good fruit, then you have to consider the type of tree that you are. But if you have put your faith in Christ, His promise is that God has begun a work of transformation in your life and He will continue to do that work. 
We call it sanctification. And it's a process. It's, it's not all at once. Or sin is completely gone, but it is a struggle of the Christian life. But yet, those who are genuinely believers in Jesus, who are united to Christ, God is doing that work in them and will produce good fruit in and through you. That's what Jesus promised in John chapter 15 when he said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. And we have to rightly understand the relationship between faith and fruit. We do not produce good fruit and thus become a good tree, but rather we are united to the only good tree in Jesus. And by faith alone in Him, we become those who produce good fruit because He is producing it through us. And so if you're struggling with what appears to be bad fruit in your life, The response is not to do more, to tape up some apples in your tree, but the response is to look back to Jesus and by faith allow Him to bring the change in you that He has promised and to allow Him to bear fruit in and through your life. We also, I think, must not confuse what might be the pruning of our lives with bad fruit in our lives. Sometimes we can think that because we've fallen on hard times, because difficulty has arisen, because we're going through a difficult struggle in our life, just seems like it's 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 always a mess. That that somehow that's that's evidence that that's bad fruit in us. We have to recognize that at times God allows the difficulty and the trials and other things that He's actually using to prune us and shape us and create us into a healthy tree through which He will ultimately produce good fruit. And lastly, much like the previous illustration of the speck in the log, this passage is not given to us so that we become those who are just fruit inspectors of everybody around us. But this starts with us looking deeply into our own lives, saying, what is the fruit that is being born through me? So if you want to identify good fruit in your life, a good place to start is with with the very things that we've been discussing and highlighting over the last number of weeks, the things that Jesus is setting forth that describe those who belong to his kingdom. Do you see that fruit in your life? Are you allowing him to create that in you? So this is the principle of produce. And the last thing that we see in the final few verses, verses 46 through 49, is the principle of perseverance. And I believe this final illustration really serves as the conclusion of the entire sermon that Jesus has given. It starts with this rhetorical question. It says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who, who, who comes to me, who hears my word and does what I say, says, let me give you a picture of what they are like. Now, I want to remind you of what was said back in verse 18 about the people who are currently gathered around Jesus in this setting. So these are people who have come all over Jerusalem, Judea, and all over the coastal regions. All these people, this diverse group has has gathered there. And it says that they came to hear Jesus and to be healed. Jesus has offered them healing, but, but they came to hear him. And so here in verse 47, Jesus now concludes this thing saying, you've come 
And you've heard, and now ultimately, what will you do? Will you actually do what I say? Will you actually evidence true faith in me by obedience to me? And so what Jesus is going to do in these, in these, these two house images is contrast those who come and hear and do with those who simply come and hear. And so those who, who not only come and hear, but also do, who are, who are true followers of Jesus, he says that you're like this. And he offers them this building illustration. This person is like a man. This man builds a house. But before he builds, he takes one important and necessary step. He digs down deep into the ground until he finds solid rock. And once he has done that, he builds his house upon that rock as the foundation of his home. And then we see that the quality of his work, the stability of what he has constructed, is only shown when the floods come. The stream rises, the floods come, and the house is not shaken because it is well built. Many of you are very familiar with this image. Maybe you remember the Sunday school song about this that I sang growing up. Now there's this other man. This man builds a house. He takes the easy way. He doesn't dig down deep. He doesn't lay a foundation, but he simply constructs the house on the dirt. Matthew uses the language of sand. Both houses, when they are built, might be indistinguishable from one another. What, what the houses look like is, is, is not highlighted or seen in this. They might be indistinguishable from one another upon first inspection. But notice that the difference is seen only when the floodwaters come. And this second house cannot stand because the ground underneath it is washed away and the house collapses. The result is the complete destruction of the house. And so this house pictures a person who says, Lord, Lord, who comes and hears, but ultimately doesn't do what Jesus says. And so as is clear in the illustration, again, it's a simple illustration. You don't need me to expand on this deeply. But, but the, the point is that the quality of the house that is built is not the wood that is used or the design of the roof in, the, in here, but in the illustration, it is just determined solely by the foundation upon which it is built. And what it is built upon is revealed by the flood. And when I reflected on this in Luke's recording of this and how Jesus delivered it to his first audience, there's no explanation, there's no further expounding on this, but simply this illustration that's set forth for his audience to ponder. The greatest application of this image and this story is not going to be what I give you right here, but it's the work that you do in your own heart today. In many ways, it's self-applied. If you're paying attention, I'm guessing you don't need me to come up with all sorts of other images or, or profound ideas of what the house is and how, how it works. But the question is clear, and it's quite simple. But it's infinitely important. What is your life built upon? Like truly built upon. Don't take that question and just casually say, oh yeah, yeah of course it's my faith. Like, 
Like what is like underneath? What is what is really there? What is everything built upon? What is the, what is the, the deepest thing that is holding you down? That's Jesus' point. What's the foundation? When the floodwaters come, and they will, does your life have something on which it can actually stand? See, the thing about fruit and foundations, I think that, 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 share, that they share in common is that you can't see them initially. They are revealed in time. Fruit takes time to grow and to ultimately be seen. The foundation of a house is unseen until the flood comes. Um... If you don't know me, I, I, I used to work in the restoration industry dealing with, with flood and fire damage. And back in 2013, we had the, uh, the flood in the big Thompson Canyon. All those days of rain and, and, and all that just came and just, just ravaged so many places through that canyon. And uh, we, got, we got a number of calls to go up into the canyon even months later to kind of see and, and, and check on houses and see if there's some houses that could be restored. And I remember a couple places that we went to that it was just, you know, total devastation, place things that were just completely swept off the hillside. But there was these other houses that we went to, this one in particular, where I remember going in and, and we had to crawl underneath kind of the crawl space and everything to kind of inspect everything. And we could see like how high the water had gone. It had gone all the way up like into the first level. And, and what was so fascinating with this one house is that, that I could see all of the, the, these, the, these massive stone pillars on which the foundation, you know, on which the house was actually constructed and built. And so much of the dirt around it had been completely washed away, and you could see almost these, these massive sections of these pillars that previously were probably completely embedded in dirt. And it just showed that, like, wow, this, this house barely stood. But it stood because somebody had taken the time to dig down deep to pour this concrete pillar deep into the ground so that when the floodwaters came, washed all the dirt around it away, but what stood was that pillar. And it was evident. And the point of this is that the foundation of your life, the integrity of what you put your faith in, will ultimately one day be revealed. Floods will come and your faith will ultimately be tested. James reminds us of this when he says, hey brothers, consider it joy when you face various trials. Because something's actually happening through those trials. The testing of your faith. It produces steadfastness. And so let that steadfastness have its full effect. Don't reject it, but let it have its work in you so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. There are times when our faith is tested. Trials are not merely punitive, but they are allowed by God to test, to reveal, and to establish our faith. And if Christ, His gospel, and His kingdom is not the foundation upon which your life is built, then it will be revealed and it may ultimately lead and result in ruin. And there's a lot of dirt that we can try to build our lives on. A lot of different dirt that people are trying to build upon. For some, it may be a wonderful career, an awesome, successful company that you've built. It could be your family other relationships, your health and your fitness, your status, your validation from others, any number of things that you ultimately find as your core identity. But if the foundation is not Christ, our lives and our faith 
will ultimately collapse because those things will simply be washed away. All of those things are not rock. As we sang when we opened up this service, all other ground is sinking sand. Do you truly believe that? You see, Jesus' point here is to show that it is possible to appear to be a solid house but have no foundation. Similarly, many of those who were gathered around Jesus are in a position of what? They look like disciples. They've come. They've gathered. They're listening to Jesus. They call Him Lord, Lord. Jesus is revealing that it's not simply what we say, but ultimately what is revealed in our lives that determines the authenticity of our faith and what we are ultimately grounded in. And there are times, I think, that people think that they have Christ as the foundation, but what they have is actually more like a bedroom apartment that's been built on. You know, what we truly value, what we truly find significance and our security in can be any number of things. And Christ, our faith, is kind of just an addition that we built on a few years ago because it seemed like a good investment at the time. But for those people, when the floods come, When the difficulty comes, when the diagnosis arrives over the telephone, when that death hits the family, when that unexpected change of events happens with your children, whatever it may be, when those things happen, they're going to be revealing times. And for those people who who Christ has just been added on, when the floods come, the other structure that looked like faith, that looked like involvement in church, and that looks like maybe Christian community may simply be swept away. When tested, it may simply collapse. And unfortunately, we have seen that many times in people's lives over the years who have come, who have sat here, who who have sang the songs, who have been part of things, and yet ultimately were washed away because of any number of reasons. But the beautiful thing is that we've seen many others. Many others whose foundation was revealed to be something solid, something grounded, something that could not be shaken. We've seen others who have walked through such difficulty, incredible heartache, trial and suffering, without clear answers to why, and yet their faith in God stood firm. Because Christ was shown to be that upon which their life was truly built. And so these two images are offered to us. Trees and houses. We consider the fruit that is being produced in your life. Are you truly connected to the only truly good tree? And allowing Him to shape and bring and produce fruit in your life as you rest in Him. And have you considered what your life is ultimately rooted on? Is it built on the rock or simply constructed on the sand? Because one day it will ultimately be revealed. Let's consider these truths and rest wholly on the rock that is our Savior. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for these images. We thank you for the hope that is here. As much as these texts may give us a challenge and a cause to reflect and consider, there is this beautiful hope 
that we don't have to just resign ourselves to the recognition that we are bad trees, but because of your righteous life lived in our place, we can be forgiven. And through the work of your Spirit, you are doing something even in broken people to bring about good fruit. Let us take hope in that this week. Let us take hope that we have a rock upon which we can, we can ground our lives, that we, can, that we can know that no matter what comes, we will not be shaken. So let us live in hope of these truths this week, God. Shape us and strengthen our faith this morning. And I ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.